You're listening to the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Uh, I'm Eugene Glover. And I'm Ben Rackinson. And we're going to be your hosts. Um, We're starting something new for us, and we're still very much in the experimental stages, so bear with us. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be changing things around as as we get our feet wet. Um, Ultimately, what we want is for this podcast to be sort of a a book club for science fiction programs. Each episode, Ben and I will watch, independently of each other, uh, watch, review, and then we'll get together and discuss a different program or series. These could be current programs, uh, they could be really old programs, they could be famous ones, uh, hopefully we've got some obscure ones for you, they could be foreign, domestic, it just happens to be whatever catches our fancy. But, for the next nine weeks, ta-da, it's Doctor Who season. So, uh, with each new episode of Doctor Who coming out each week, uh, we've decided to really focus our, our attention on these uh, for the moment, while we work out any technical details that may crop along the way. And the new series of Doctor Who started just four weeks ago with a new Doctor, uh, Matt Smith, a new companion, played by Karen Gillan, and a new showrunner, uh, popular British television writer Stephen Moffat. Ben, uh, before we get into this week's episode on, uh, which is the Time of Angels, uh, what did you think of the first three episodes? Well... Uh, to be, to be honest, I, I, I thought the first two episodes were pretty strong. I, I'm a big fan of Stephen Moffat's writing. Um, I think a lot of people were, uh, because of the, the, the excellent quality of stories that he was writing during the time of Russell T. Davies. Uh, very, very tight writing. He, he's, he's got a really great ability to blend story uh, story development, along with, I, I don't know, continuity, uh, overall Doctor Who continuity, if you want to call it that. And he really, t- he really can tell a very, very tight story. So I thought, I thought the first two stories, which were his, were particularly strong. I was nervous about the first one, obviously, because it was going to be Matt Smith. Uh, I didn't know what to, what to think of him, uh, at least in all the, uh, all the little adverts that I've been seeing. But I thought he did an admirable job stepping into the part. Uh, they, they scripted some nice little dialogue that kind of showed him literally taking on the mantle of the Doctor, something that I liked a great deal. And he was able to kind of carry that through into episode two. Uh, you mentioned episode three, did not like. Uh, I thought it was a very, very weak episode. I know that many people would disagree with me because it did have Daleks, but I thought it was just, it, it didn't have any dramatic punch to it. It, it was a rather... Weak episode that I thought served only as a as a vehicle to to bring the Daleks back, without um, you know, on on a permanent basis. But overall, I, I think I mean it, it's a new it's a new series, uh, new showrunner, new actors. Uh, so I, I think for the first three episodes, for the most part, I think it's going off in a pretty good direction. Well, I uh, would generally agree with that. I thought the first episode was, um, was, was particularly strong for, for Matt Smith. Uh, I thought he did a, a, it's probably the best regeneration episode I can think of because I, I, I really do not like the 
cast revolve uh, twin dilemma um, that that horrible thing with Sylvester McCoy and all the ones where the doctor is flopping around and and sort of insane and and can barely do things or fainting and stuff I really don't like those episodes I, I you know I even though it's been a sort of a time-honored tradition it's not always that bad as they have been recently I mean David Tennant spent 90 minutes in a coma in his first episode and I just don't I don't like that. It's fine that they're regenerating, and but in this case, the doctor was up and he was he was doing things, and he was you could almost feel him sort of settling into his himself as the episode went along, and I thought that was that was a particularly uh, nice piece of that. And it was a very slowly paced episode, which is unusual for the new series, and I I particularly like that. I. Uh, I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, one other uh, aspect that I really liked, especially with the first two episodes, is the strength of Amy Pond. I yeah. really like having a, a, a companion in here who is not just your... I, I'm reminded of companions of the past, uh, most notably Joe Grant and Sarah Jane, who, when they're, uh, when they're with the Doctor, they are completely useless. Uh, their purpose solely is to scream and say, help me, Doctor. But here you've got Amy Pond, who in both episodes was able to actually deduce the problem, uh, come, to, come to a resolution, especially in the second episode. Uh, she, she finally understood what the beast was and its relationship to everybody on the ship. She came to that conclusion. It wasn't the Doctor. In fact, the Doctor had some entirely contrary resolution, which would have spelled doom and gloom for everybody, but Amy figured it out. I like the fact that there is a strong, uh, very intelligent companion along with the doctor. My, she, go, ahead. go ahead. But She is excellent. I, I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, she, she's a wonderful companion, and I don't know why, because she doesn't look like her, and she doesn't talk like her, but every once in a while when she gets in a sort of playful mood, she reminds me of Emma Peel from the Avengers. Now, if they could just put her in, like, a cat suit and do some judo moves, she would be the perfect uh, companion. But there's, there's something about that sort of playful, uh, I'm smart, but playful attitude that, that every once in a while I see that in the character, and I, and I think, wow, you know, that, that's something we don't see much on, on TV. And uh, so, I, I've, I, yeah, I really... I really like Amy Pond, and not just from a from a Purian standpoint because she she's a kissagram, but yeah. uh, <laughs> she's uh, she's really an excellent uh, excellent companion. And I I like the fact that they've kind of so far steered away from a romance angle because that just is is a messy that leads to messy breakups every time they do that. Uh, with, well, with the platonic with the platonic companions. You know, you can you can go your separate way, but when they get all clingy like Rose and and whatnot, there's always that kind of like mm, we can't leave on mm, the best situation here. And I kind of didn't like uh, that. Well, true, and uh, I, I I could really wax on about um, my feelings of the Doctor uh, being reduced to something like that. Um, I've always liked the fact that he's he's just alien enough. So that he, so that in the past he has not fallen into that trap, but 
still has just enough humanity in his heart so that he could um, he, he could really develop a relationship, uh, as you said, a platonic one with his companions, so that there was some general effect, uh, real genuine affection that existed, and you'd seen that in all the previous companions and all the previous doctors. So yeah, that was the one thing that really kind of set me off a bit with the whole David Tennant Rose scenario. And, and I'm glad that that was the only only one that they really did that with, because it 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 reduces the doctor from uh, the the role that 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 he is, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. So the the only thing I'd say is I'd add I'd agree with you on on the Dalek episode, although I'm also in the camp that that says that the best a Dalek episode can ever hope to be is mediocre. Because the Daleks are horrible villains, I know I'm, I'll take flack for that, but but they're they're completely worthless uh, and and unconvincing. And I'll I'll always still be seeing John Pertwee throwing a coat over their eye and pushing them into a a pool of goo, and you know it's like and dead. They just and it doesn't matter what they retrofit them; they just still seem silly. And so I I wasn't as disappointed with Victory of the Daleks because I wasn't expecting much out of it. I didn't mind the new Daleks. You know, heck, if it makes it easier to tell the soldiers from the scientists the part by making them bright colors, whatever, they're, they're still unconvincing. So, um, you know, I, I might be in the minority there. A lot of people really hated the new design, but I was like, it, I guess it's different. Everyone else is going on. I was like, oh, I like the look where they had the rivets when Russell T. Davies. I go, they had rivets? And I never saw it. So I, I, I guess I'm not observant when it comes to Daleks because I just kind of, tune them out. So. Well, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the new Dalek design. I mean, to me, they look like Lego Daleks. Um, especially <laughs> the big primary colors. You're but, called uh, eye Daleks a lot. Yes, yeah, eye Daleks, yes. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you. I think the Daleks have really been rendered um, just the most impotent of villains. And it's interesting that you say that because I, about uh, a year ago, I actually rewatched. Um, the classic William Hartnell episode, The Daleks, where they were introduced. That was the and best of uh, the best story the Daleks ever had. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I remember watching it, and they deliberately slowed the pace down so much in that story that it made the Daleks menacing. I mean, and even for me to watch this show, you know, after having seen countless Doctor Who episodes, countless Dalek episodes, to see this one again and still get that creepy factor that these Daleks are really menacing. So that, I, I wish we could somehow return to that, but I don't think it's possible. Um, the story, storytelling today has got to be much faster for the, um, the Buffy vampire MTV generation, so I don't think we're ever going to see the, the real menacing Daleks as they could be. I mean, now they're, I mean, they're, they're something of a joke almost. They're either... They're either completely ridiculous and easily defeatable, or they're just so strong that they're you, ridiculous. Take, yeah, they become ridiculous all over again. And this is this is my other complaint uh, with with the new ones is that the Daleks were all you know in in the Daleks the first episode they were menacing because they were in the right place it was their environment you know everything fit the Dalek world you're in the Dalek world and in that if you can't get out you you've got a problem. When they moved out into the greater universe, then they started getting ridiculous. And I think that there's there's a real 
nostalgia that people have about the Daleks, people who grew up in England and or even over here watching Dalek episodes. And it's like, ooh, the Daleks are so terrifying. It's like, no, really they're not. You're remembering that through a sort of cloud of poor memories. If you go back and watch them, you realize, no, they're not. But so when Russell T. Davies came along, the only episode of, of the new Daleks that I liked, kind of, was Dalek, where yes. there was just the one Dalek, and he was genuinely menacing. And it's like one Dalek, wipe out a whole city if you let him loose, and, you know, the whole army. But, but you know, if we had enough guys, they could have defeated him. But, again, you're in the right circumstances. You're locked in the base. The Dalek has the superior firepower and the defensive. And thing. But when they moved on to the quote-unquote insane Daleks, the part-human, part-insane Dalek that they came up with, that their goal is to destroy the entire universe. It's like, what, what kind of goal is that? I mean, that, that makes your villains so ridiculous, so so pointless, because you defeat them. You know, you either defeat them utterly, and they're gone. And we know that'll never happen with the Daleks. They'll keep coming back. Or you don't defeat them, and they try again. And you can't have them trying to destroy the universe every week. I, I much preferred when the Daleks' goals were to take over a planet or a solar system at most, or to start a big war between federations so that their troops could move in. But, I mean, realistically, beyond, beyond that level, you can't make the Daleks a bigger threat than that and, and, and have it work. And I'm hoping that these new Daleks uh, don't know anything about the attempts to destroy the fabric of reality and just go on their way to create a new empire and, you know, start one planet at a time, taking over peaceful people, things like that. And, and so at least the Dalek, the Doctor, can land on a planet, battle the Daleks on the planet for that planet, and be done with it and, and go on. I would, I would uh, agree with that in, in every aspect because I think the Daleks have been really rendered just, just as we've said before, they've been rendered ridiculous because their goals have been so unbelievably lofty that for the viewer, all you can simply say is, well, then what? Right. I mean, either, if the doctor defeats them, you, you, it feels kind of, you know that it isn't going to stick because we've already experienced in, in if you're going to refer to past Doctor Who canon, I mean, we've already heard about the horrible things that the Daleks have done throughout, you know, the entire universe. So for the Doctor to defeat them, I mean, you, you naturally you want your hero to defeat them, but it kind of, every, with every defeat, it makes them less threatening. And it, it just, just got to a point where, like, oh, do I have to see another Dalek episode? So I, I don't know. I, I will wait and see. Uh, does Stephen have some new, fresh ideas for the Daleks? I can only hope so. I mean, it's still, still early in the game. So I will give him the benefit of the doubt for now. But uh, I, I will do it with a critical eye. What's your bet? You think they'll be back by the end of the season? You think they spent that money on all those nice new shiny Daleks just to make toys, or uh, they have to use them again like they do, you know, the Cybermen costumes and everything? Is that when they make them, they gotta get some bucks out of them and, and get them on screen again? That's yeah. I see. Thirteen episodes per season. Yeah. I think we're done 
with the Daleks for the year. We, if, if they do come back, it won't be to the finale. But I've heard rumors to the contrary that uh, the finale will involve um, other things and other people. So Daleks, really, Cybermen, River Song. Yeah, I mean, River Song. Amy will be there. I mean, they'll all be there. It's... Oh, that's Max of Russell, though. You know, <laughs> bringing all these past elements into one big finale. I certainly hope not. Well, this this will be the, the episode where the crack opens up, and it turns out it's Rose and the human version of the David Tennant Doctor trying to get through to take over the show. That's one theory. <laughs> that's one theory I've heard. I didn't make that one up myself. It's like obviously, I think that's wishful thinking from some poor fan who who just desperately has a crush on uh, David Tennant and doesn't like uh, Matt Smith, who uh, who incidentally Charlie Brooker. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a a comedian and a commentator in Britain likened his face to a friendly Easter Island uh, Easter Island statue. Ah, <laughs> which I thought, you know, now every time I see him, I see those Moa standing there and and you know thinking, hey, those are actually the Doctor. Well, I, yeah, maybe that's it's, it's, it's happened in past Doctor Who episodes. So maybe maybe the Easter Island statues are a man, you know. A representation of the Doctor during one of his uh, trips to the past. You never know. That's but if a I should ever, free one, Stephen. Yeah. Stephen Moffat, you can have that idea if you want to use it. We're, we're not taking any, uh, we don't want any screen credit for that. No, definitely not for that one. I, I don't want any credit for that. But uh, <laughs> the only sad part is, is if I should ever go down to Easter Island, I'll say, oh, look, it's the Doctor. Yeah. Hey, at least then you can, like, if you have some spray paint or something, you can put a bow tie on one of them. Oh, absolutely, and then uh, maybe also uh, spray paint the word "bad wolf" all over the place. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's just save that for our discussion of the crack. Yes. <laughs> um, so we we've probably gone on a little longer than about the first three episodes. So, but you know, there, there's a lot going on there. They're setting up a new series. And I think now they're really kicking into stride with this latest episode, which is episode four, The Time of Angels. And it is a two-parter. The next part will be airing in about three or four days from when we're recording this. So anything that we may tell you or say that we have some great theory could be smashed in record time of being completely wrong. But but I'm, I'm at least willing to go out on the limb and... and uh, discuss my theories of what's going on. So um, let's start, uh, maybe, uh, Ben, let's start with a, just a little bit of a synopsis of the episode and then uh, go on with, with what, what, what do you think? Well, um, the episode starts off uh, on some ship that we find, uh, find out is called the Byzantium. And uh, there's, this, there's this woman we don't see her face at first, but she's dressed in a very elegant gown. Uh, you and think I, that was elegant? I, I had some other thoughts about that. I, I well, thought she looked terrible. <laughs> it depends on, depends on your century. I suppose in that particular century, elegant, you know, that, that's, you know, women's fashions are always changing. Who knows? Um, I didn't think it was, it, it's, it was certainly not a practical outfit. And I kept thinking, oh, God, if she has to wear that the entire episode, this is going to be a real waste. Um, but uh, as we find out, it's actually her song. Uh, someone that we had met uh, in uh, a David Tennant episode called Silence of the Library, a rather mysterious woman. What's the other the other part of that? Forest of the Dead? Uh, Forest of the Dead. That was okay. part two of, the, of that, that story. And uh, River is a rather mysterious woman. She knows the Doctor. 
she doesn't know her. <laughs> he doesn't know her, so they're kind of like uh, meeting each other uh, from opposite ends of their timeline, and slowly, uh, at, at some point, there's going to be a crossover. I, I, I can't wait to see how they're going to tell this. Um, I, it could be, it could be great. It could be disastrous. Who knows? It's, it's kind of early to tell. But that was also a Stephen Moffat episode. So, so therefore, the only one who knows is the Grand Moff Stephen. Is Grand Moff Stephen? Yes. Uh, so anyway, we are uh, reintroduced to this River Song. Meanwhile, we then cut to the Doctor and Amy, who are in another uh, place of the space-time continuum. They're twelve thousand years in the future. Yeah, twelve thousand years in the future. They're they're at a museum. Apparently, the Doctor likes to go to museums so that he can keep score. And he comes across uh, something called a home recorder, which is uh, a Starship's version of the black box, or a home box, I guess. And he sees some rather cryptic writing. He recognizes it and knows immediately to take the TARDIS to a particular point in space where, at that moment, River jettisons herself out of the Byzantium and falls into the Doctor's arms inside the TARDIS. Right now... Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, it, it was it was it was a great sequence. I mean, it was supposed to be fantastically exciting and whatnot, and it, and it was. I mean, for Doctor Who, it was quite. Thing, it's a pity that they spoiled it by putting it in every trailer of yes. the series since the beginning and showing her blowing herself out the airlock, which really you know ruined the surprise where she'd been cornered, and if she had you know done it on a surprise, that would have been been great. Yeah. So anyway, she gets the doctor to go to uh, a planet. Um, it's uh, a planet where the Byzantium, the ship she was on, has crashed. They, uh, she's part of some religious military militia, uh, religious militia, and they are looking for something called the Weeping Angel, something that, again, Stephen Moffat had introduced in a previous uh Doctor Who episode called Blink, which uh, I think a lot of people would regard as one of the best episodes of that entire season. A, 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 an excellent episode, and, and the one that barely had the Doctor in it that year. Yes, that was the... it was uh, also known as, uh, the, those are referred to as a Doctor Light episodes. Yeah. But brilliantly told, and even for a Doctor Light episode, his presence was was strong, uh, felt very strongly throughout the entire, entire story. So... They are out to try and capture this angel, which was in the cargo hold of the Byzantium. And as they uh, make their way through um, some ruins, which the Byzantium crashed on, uh, they find out that this, it's, it's a gigantic maze. I believe they call it the Maze of the Dead. And there's all these mazes of statues. And as it turns out these statues are all angels of a sort. Dying angels, yeah. Dying angels. Uh, there was a rather cryptic line earlier in the episode that, uh, from some text that says the image that beholds, uh, uh, that which holds the image of an angel becomes an angel. So it's possible that maybe these are all people that became angels by staring at one over a long period of time. Uh, that would be my that be my guess. It could and, be what's uh, left of the indigenous population of that planet that died exactly, out. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the episode pretty much ends with 
um, them all being cornered, being surrounded by these these dying angels, which are coming back to life. I guess we should point out, yeah, yeah, starving to death, but coming back to life. And uh, the lights, which was some um, lum- uh, luminous globe, gravity it, globe, yeah. the gravity globe is is going out. And for anybody that remembers the episode Blink, the statues can only move when they are not being observed. And every time the light goes out, no one's observing them, so they get closer and closer and closer. And that ends part one. Yeah, it was. It, it was a. Uh, I, I thought it was an excellent episode. Um, I'm not going to go out on the limb like a lot of people have and say it's like one of the most greatest episodes of Doctor Who ever made because I have to reserve judgment until we've seen the conclusion of the story because I, yeah. you can you can ruin the whole. It's got beautiful atmosphere. The pacing is good. The mystery is good. You know the the characters work are working well together, but you know they could they could totally mess it up at the well, end by well, you know we've been burned we've been burned yeah. in the past uh, by uh, multi part Russell you know Russell T Davies episodes you know I, I don't want to go too far off track but there's been a number of two part episodes written by um, uh, RTD Dogs that, in Manhattan comes yeah to mind. that started off really really great excellent development at first and then just completely disintegrate into just absolute nonsense thereby ruining the entire story as a whole so yeah i I would rather reserve judgment uh i like what i've seen so far but am i going to call it the the best episode ever oh good grief no it's far too soon i mean even if part two is great it's too soon to say this is the best episode ever i will just chalk it up as being a really really great story Say it's shaping up to be the best of the season, though. But so far, it, that would well, be my impression. You know, as I'm halfway through, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this one is better than than the you know the other the other ones of this year." But that's uh, you know remains to be seen in 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 the end. But and we're still, as as we pointed out, I mean, this is only the fourth episode of the season so far, so it's still early. There's a lot of story to be told. Um, like I said, will I regard it as the best one? of the season, eh, it might end up being that way. It might not. But in any event, I thought it was a very, very strong story, despite the fact that it did have um, eh, a couple of unusual elements to it, which, I don't know, maybe Eugene, you might want to bring up. Now, let's let's talk about unusual element number one, River Song, um, <laughs> who is a, an unusual character because, as, as Ben mentioned, the Doctor is meeting her in a non-contiguous order. When David Tennant's doctor met her, he had never met her before. And that is the episode in which she dies. And so every time the doctor meets her in the future, he knows that she's dead. Um, And that, you know, they're working their way through this relationship. And she knows his name, his actual real Gallifreyan name, which we didn't get to hear. She knows how to write uh, high Gallif- old High Gallifreyan language, because that's what she put in the home box to draw the doctor's attention. It took him 12,000 years to find it, but when he did, he then took the home box, looked at it, and it had recordings of her giving the coordinates, and you know, it was, you know, she had engineered him to be at the right spot in the right time, which, considering how badly he's been flying the TARDIS um, lately... Uh, that's probably pretty optimistic on her part that he would actually arrive at the moment she's suffocating out the airlock. But that's that's a, you know for dramatic purposes we'll allow that one to go 
to go fly. They, she knows a lot about the TARDIS. She knows how to fly it. She knows how to fly it better than the Doctor does. She knows how to land it. She knows how to land it. And, and I want to say something about the landing, because I've been listening to people talk complaining, because she did two things. One, she hit what the Doctor called the blue boringer buttons, or she calls them the blue stabilizers, which causes the TARDIS to stop flinging around in space and yay. fly normally. I mean, yay! <laughs> and the other thing she does is that she lands the TARDIS without it making the TARDIS noise, which I will not do because no one will ever be able to do that again after Matt Smith did that. No, that was, that was absolutely brilliant on his part. Uh, and it doesn't make that noise, and he complains about the fact of the noise. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't like the fact that it's not going to make the noise anyway. She says he, he parks it, he lands it with a parking brake on. But I want to point out that in the classic series, most of the time, they were no way consistent, but most of the time, there are two things. One, the TARDIS flew normally. It did not rock around unless it was under the impact of, you know, external forces. And two, you didn't hear it materialize when you were inside. You just simply heard the time rotor stop, the pitch of the TARDIS changed a little bit, and you had that landing chime. And I'm thinking that basically, you know, they, they changed all that when the new series started with, with Christopher Eccleston. And I'm just and, thinking and, he's fixing it. You and, know? Well, well, the reasoning was something that Russell came up with, a story right. up with that I thought was absolutely bad. Um, in the episode Journey's End, when you've got all these former companions of the Doctor, all in the TARDIS, the Doctor makes the big pronouncement. Do you ever wonder why the TARDIS flies so badly? Because it was supposed to be manned by eight people. Yeah, something like six or eight or yeah, however many sides the, the console has, which, you right. know, pff, Romana had no trouble flying the thing normally. The Doctor no, didn't have much trouble flying it. He and couldn't land it, but... Obviously, River Song has no problem flying it normally either, so... Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe this is a return to a more stable flying TARDIS, at least as far as the insides go. And then did she, she also said she learned how to fly it from the best, and then goes on to point out it's not the doctor who taught her. That's an interesting one. Who could it be? The master? Romana? I, I haven't a clue. You know, I, I, I think, I, I, have a, I have an idea, it wouldn't be the doctor, but I have a little theory about River's song that I'll, I'll kick out here. I think, because at one point in the show, the military guy talks to her and he says, he doesn't know who, he's talking to River, and he says, he doesn't know who or what you are, yet does he? And she says, no. And, and he's like, well, you better make sure he doesn't find out. She says, well, I have no intention to go back to prison. So, you know, sinister past. I think, at first off, just like when the doctor met River the first time, she died. I think that when River meets the Doctor for the first time, he dies. And I don't mean regenerates. I mean the end of the Doctor. Whether or not she kills him, or she is instrumental, or she is there in some way, but when she meets the Doctor, that was his end. And this is why she can say things like, I have pictures of all of you. Because if she, if she didn't know he was dead then he could continue regenerating and she just simply wouldn't know. That's and I think those two are going to work towards opposite ends. And, you know, it's possible that at some point, after he died, she had the TARDIS. And if there was another Time Lord there, Rassilon, the Master, the Rani, someone, someone evil probably, that was helping out, that may be where she learned to fly it and learned, uh, you know, a number of things. But that's that's just my 
my little toss is that I, I, I can see the symmetry of having them meet at opposite, opposite ends and of their lives and work backwards. And well, it may it, never it happen. It would make sense. It would make sense because I, I, had, I, I had that same impression that, um, that they were meeting at, at opposite ends of, of, each of their respective time, time streams and working uh, as a doctor was working forward. She was, you know, with every, with every meeting, she, uh, she was going backwards, so to speak. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that, if, that they makes perfect that, sense. Uh, if they keep them in sequential order for her or whether or not it's just jumbled around. But that she know, you know, as she goes through her life in a normal linear fashion, she knows that any time she meets the doctor will obviously be before he's dead because he's already died in her timeline. So, you know, she can call him by sending out a, a thing, and if he shows up, well, there you go. He's, you know, that's from a different point. So it might go... And here's another question. Is it a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that we now learn that River was in a prison and the crack in Amy's wall, which has been beat over our heads like Bad Wolf every episode in the series, that the crack led to a prison? Coincidence? Mm. You know, will we, will we get to that, you know... Will that crack still be leading to a prison if they open it up the next, you know, the next place they get to, or, or what? Is there is it coincidence, perhaps, but it's just something to think about. Well, there is one other element to consider on, on, on that. Um, in the episode "Victory of the Daleks," when the Doctor is talking to Amy and uh, starts questioning her about the Daleks, she has no memory of them whatsoever. She has no memory of the. Of, of any of the extraterrestrial events, from what I can see, that happened, uh, you know, most notably on Christmas Day. That's that's usually when things all seem to go to hell. But she has no memory of uh, of, of the Dalek uh, invasion, uh, planets in the skies. She has no memory of this at all. And this makes her something, which, which makes her an enigma. Something the Doctor has yet to figure out. Just like her boyfriend, boyfriend, <laughs> her boyfriend Rory the nurse in the 11th hour, his badge says it was issued in 1990, which, you know, they spent they spent extra time bringing your attention down to that badge so that you would perhaps pick up that clue. But everyone's there taking pictures with cell phones, and I think there's even a Blackberry storm. So you know that that story takes place in 2010 or greater, or, or you know, roughly 2008 and greater. It's, it's a contemporary back. episode. So, and Rory's not old enough to have been working at the hospital for 20 years. No. So something something's wrong. The, there yeah. have been little clues, you know, the, the Prisoner Zero mentioned the Pandoracon or something like that, or Pandora. It, it sounds like Pandora, you know, the, the box you don't want to open, uh, and the silence is coming, and, oh, the doctor doesn't know anything about it. And even the computer that uh, Amy's other boyfriend uh, had, the, the name on it was like the Myth Computer, something like that. It was written on the, on the back of the computer. So like it's an odd, you know, linking myths and, and whatnot together. So I think that there's probably some clues that have been sprinkled in the episodes that we haven't seen. But that could be just me having enormous faith in, in Grand Moff. Uh, Stephen. Well, yeah. I do remember uh, reading some um, interviews uh, or, or hearing some interviews with, uh, with Stephen, and at first he said that he he wasn't going to um, 
go in that direction. He was he wanted to stay away uh, from these big, overreaching arts. Oh, I wish he had. Uh, and I kind of, I and personally, I kind of liked them. I thought uh, those are the only elements of the of the Russell stories that I enjoyed. Uh, unfortunately, they came at the expense of really good storytelling. And I thought, well, if if Stephen can take this this uh, idea, uh, this this series long arc that that Russell liked to do but do it in, in a really compelling storytelling fashion, then we might have, uh, we, we might end up with a, a season of Doctor Who where uh, the entire, all the stories would just be absolutely fantastic to watch and, you know, maybe encourage people to watch them over and over and over again to constantly look for those clues. That's, that's, a, that's a good thought. That, that's a good thought. Um, let's see, what else is the big thing? Of course, we've got the angels. Amy is, is having her problems with the angels. She's looked into their eyes and appears to be infected, maybe the, the way to, to go. And, uh, is it, a, is it a coincidence that at the first point that River, you know, may have noticed something's wrong with Amy, that she gives her this shot that, you know, supposedly is against radiation. Right, I noticed that too. But, you know, they didn't bother to do that before they went into the irradiated caves. It was like it was didn't a preparatory see, move. You didn't see anybody else get a shot. No. And and so, you know, we don't know if it really is that or, or she's up to something. And which leads me to the other question. What is... I don't think they actually said that they were there, the military, the, the, the church, which they called them. And the doctor did a or the writer, depends on how you look at it, did a brilliant job of deflecting that. It's like the church, oh, it changed. Move on. You know, much like he did so that you, it's just dismissed, that you just the, take it as read. The church is now the military, and but we don't know why they're there. I mean, what are they after? Are they after to destroy the angel? After the, Are they after to capture the angel? Are they after to turn it into some sort of a, a an icon or use its power? Or do they worship it? Or, you know, what... What is their actual purpose? And the doctor hasn't asked, and we don't know what it's there for. And, you know, you have to ask yourselves a couple questions. I mean, is the church really just nothing more than a military organization? Or is this a militaristic branch of the church? Kind of like during the Crusades, you would have the Knights Templar. Hmm. And, you know... Which kind of makes a difference because are they there for a secular purpose? Uh, are they protecting people? Or are they, you know, trying to save the colonists or what? Or are they there for some sort of darker, perhaps darker, you know, purpose to advance the advance the church? I don't know. Well, it, it, it's a it's a good point. Uh, I I know that as I watched it, um, my my first immediate conclusion is that it's what you just suggested about them being like a a futuristic version of the Knights Templar, that they were a military branch of the church. That was, that was just my first immediate assumption. Uh, same thing with why they're, after to get, why they're out to get the angel. Well, I mean, we know from watching Blink how dangerous these angels can be. So we can automatically, right from the very beginning of the story, make that assumption, well, they're, they're out to capture the angel because it is a threat. But then there is that one little dialogue between, was it uh, the bishop? And, and was it a bishop? and no, bishop! Right. Sorry, Python reference. And, 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 and there's more to that whole dialogue than just, he doesn't know who you are. Uh, you could go back to prison. And automatically, there are secrets. Yes. And 
you kind of get the feeling that she's not the owner of the secret. They have a secret too. There's apparently there's hidden agendas involved, which now, at least from the viewer standpoint, does make their um, their agenda somewhat dubious. And and I and you know it might even be aligned with the angels because I don't know if you noticed, but there they you know they killed the military guys. Uh, and then they use the cerebral cortex so that they could talk to the doctor, and they get the doctor trapped at the, the point closest to the Byzantium. And they've got them all trapped, the lights are going out, you know, it's like a big cliffhanger. And then they intentionally try to piss him off. It's like, oh, I, I want you to know, doctor, I died in fear, you promised me I wouldn't. And 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 they're, they're trying to get him mad, and they even point it out in the dialogue, and he's like, what are they trying to do? Because they're trying to get him mad. They think, why are they trying to get him mad? Well, exactly. if you know the doctor, you know that when you get him mad, he's even more dangerous. And he exactly. is going to get into the Byzantium. And if he gets into the Byzantium, huh, they get into the Byzantium. Mm. So it's as if they're hurting them and then using the doctor as a tool to get them up into the Byzantium. And, and you know, what's the per- are they trying to get Amy there? Or because... You know, maybe with, with River's complicity, you know, with the stabilizer or something, maybe they're doing something to her. Uh, I, I really don't know. But it just struck me as being, you know, somebody's being particularly dim, not noticing that this is going on uh, in the grand scheme of things. So, I, I don't know, but I, I think there's darker, darker things afoot. Well, yeah, um, certainly that whole bit about uh, trying to get the doctor angry does hint at a rather nefarious motive by the angels. And knowing him, too. And and knowing which button to push. Exactly. It it, it, it just, it it creates for a deeper mystery um, as far as all the parties are concerned. I mean, the only one that... Um, we really know anything about at this point. I mean, I mean, obviously not the Doctor and Amy. I mean, well, there's a little bit of mystery around Amy, but there's there's virtually no mystery, um, virtually no mystery surrounding the Doctor now. So, but all the the all the other players in this, there's there's something hidden in the shadows. Yeah, pardon the pun. And we've been and we've been deflected away from it by little bits of dialogue, like oh yeah, you know. It's just that way and, and, and be done with it. Now, here's this one's totally, totally out in left field. But at the beginning, when River is escaping from the man in the tuxedo, Alistair. Now, do, are you familiar with the actor who was playing that part? He was familiar to me, but I didn't catch, I didn't catch his... Uh, his his name is Simon Dutton, and he is one of a very few actors who has played a very famous role. And that was, in the 1980s, he was the saint ah. in a series of movies. And, I, and, and un, apparently the ratings were not good enough, but I thought he was probably the best of the bunch. I mean, you know, Roger Moore is, you know, we're not worthy and, and whatnot. But, it, but he, was, he was very much like the books. I'm a huge fan of Simon Templer, which is his name. Funny, isn't it? Simon Templer? Could it, you know, is that a joke? Too many coincidences. Is that a joke? Or, and, and not to mention that, I mean, I, he's not a huge name actor or anything, but I mean, he has been in, in a number of programs, distinction. He had, what, three lines and they killed him? 
you think somebody they're really his, dead? Yeah, somebody of his really reputation. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I would not be surprised if he was still, uh, if the character was still alive in that ship. I can't imagine that. Um, I mean, it doesn't really look like the ship out. crashed. It just looked like it no, landed it like nose a, yeah, down. Yeah, exactly. It landed belly up, uh, belly down. Um, I, I would have to agree, especially uh, with his uh, reputation. Although it would not be the first. I mean, we've seen uh, a history of Doctor Who episodes with notable guests on them, which had just the tiniest of scenes. And Usually non-actors like Richard Dawkins or, um, uh, darn, I can't think of the astronomer's name right now, who was in The 11th Hour. Um, oh, I am so going to get it for that one. I can't think of his name. But he's the, the guy who does all the astronomy for many years over in England and, and made it popular. And he was one of the experts, the, the cheeky old guy who wanted the to know who the woman was ah. in the web chat. Um, oh, I'll look that up and try to put it in the show notes because I'm embarrassed that I can't remember his name. I'm getting old. Um, anyway. But there have, there have been actors. I mean, the, the one that immediately comes to mind is John Cleese. City of Death. Oh, yeah, okay. Way back in classic series. Okay. Yeah, yeah, classic yeah, yeah, series, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that was, that was kind of a forced cameo and this just didn't this seemed like you know, I don't know this just seemed like somebody they could hire the cheapest possible actor who could wear a tuxedo and, and be done with it I, I don't know I just I was pleased to see him working because you don't see him much and I, I first time I watched it I'm looking at like I know that man I know that voice I just didn't recognize him with gray hair I have to say it's like oh <laughs> we're all getting old I, I had seen him before, but I, I had not watched um, any of those uh, uh, the newer tellings of, uh, of the Saints. So uh, it, he escaped me uh, as far as that was concerned. But I had seen the actor before. And when you mentioned his name, I went, yeah, I do know that name. I, I have heard of him before. I'm sure I've seen him in other work, but I just can't think of what it is right now. So uh, the other, the one last thing I think I'd, I'd point out at the episode is that I really felt, and again, who knows what happens in the last part? By the time people hear this, probably everyone will know it. But, but I thought the pacing in this episode was spot on. This was, you know, it, it kept you suspenseful. It it moved things along. It felt like the pacing for a perfect two-parter. And yes. I would even go so far as to say that if they could do this pacing, every episode should be a two-parter. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the 45-minute Doctor Who. I still think that they that they have to, you know, tie things up too quickly at the end because of that, that format choice that apparently, as I recall, uh, Russell T. Davies saying is that the kids just don't have the attention span to watch it. And I think that's nonsense because my kids have not the slightest problem watching this or they might they might complain a little bit about some of the older Doctor Who episodes but you know if you stop after watching three episodes and don't watch the fourth I hear about it you know it's like no put in the fourth one it's like, they have no problem they have no problem with that. and and from a kid's standpoint by the way they are loving the new Doctor I mean in the first two episodes I hear 
Geronimo from my son when he leaps out of restaurant booze and the car and and everywhere else and I and Michelle runs around you know pretending to be throwing a plate of buttered bread out hey, get out and stay out and 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 they both love and so basically run and you know they, they are picking up little catchphrases and whatnot that they just adore and they they laugh and they have fun with the episodes and they liked David Tennant and they liked Christopher Eccleston but I've never seen any connection like this that they you know are just when Victory of the Daleks came on they came in and they sat down by the way my kids are eight and five and they were seven and five and they came in and they sat down and they said let's see what neat phrases the doctor says this week word for word out of my daughter's mouth and then there weren't any because the story didn't have any good ones but yeah but, but they it wasn't Stephen that's right but but they they adore it and I think that you know uh, I think Moffat has said that it's a fairy tale and that he's kind of targeting, you know, it's a show for kids that adults can enjoy, like the show was originally. And he's he's hit it, as far as I can tell in my household, he's hit it brilliantly. I, I, I would agree that uh, in our home, um, the, the Doctor Who episodes uh, with Matt Smith have been... Your cats like strong. it? Oh, actually, our, our little kitten will actually sit in front of the television and stare. She will watch <laughs> So, yes, the cats love it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, go figure. Uh, but uh, I lost my train of thought. Um, I guess what I was going to say Sorry. is that um, Stephen has taken Doctor Who and just raised it to a whole new level. I, I do remember that when Russell brought it back, I mean, there was huge excitement. It, did, it, it was bonanza box office ratings. I mean, I've, everybody's talking about, uh, you know, how the story, how the finales were going. Uh, just last night, I was looking into some old um, bonus material, and there was interviews with uh, Freeman Agumon about uh, how the upcoming finale was going to be. So there was a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement about Doctor Who when Russell brought it back. But I think what Stephen is doing is he is reinventing that very element that... Uh, the youth of England back uh, in the classic series, especially, I would say, during the first three Doctors, but that magic that they were feeling when they would watch a Doctor Who episode, that sense of uh, complete awe and wonder and, and sense of fun. And I think Stephen has found a way to take that uh, and, and tell that into, the, in, into these episodes now and yet still make it current, make it relevant, not have it feel kind of dated. Uh, again, it just goes back to really, really tight storytelling and excellent pacing. Uh, one of the things that I, I loved about uh, this last episode is there was a place for a place for kind of you know, spooky moments. There was a place for adventure, and there was a place for laughter. And every one of them felt entirely appropriate. It never, uh, I mean, I've seen some episodes where uh, all of a sudden the laugh would come when I thought was just at a really, really bad moment. I have not gotten that in any, uh, in any of these, um, in any of the Stephen episodes, especially this last one. And there was uh, one really, really great gag, the one that you mentioned earlier, when the doctor talks about the sound that the TARDIS makes and, and River's response is, it's not supposed to make that sound. You leave the brakes on. Now, 
in spite of all this excitement and, and adventure and, and high energy that's going on, it was the perfectly placed punchline. We laughed so hard, we had to actually stop, uh, stop the DVD and, and just stop the recording and, and just col uh, collect ourselves because for us, that was just one of the funniest lines I had ever heard in the show. Uh, in, in the past several years. So, again, I really have to echo what you said. I think Stephen is doing a magnificent job in penning these stories and having a really great sense of, I've got this amount of time to tell this, this amount of time to take it in this direction. How can I best do that? And, and I agree. If they, can, if they can continue that level of pacing, then by all means, let's stick with two-parter episodes because I think they... they they do uh, the whole the story as a whole a much better service than this these 40, 45 minute episodes, which I personally don't care for at all. You know they uh, <clears throat> they say that one of the, the disadvantages to having a multi part story, and and there's certainly I'm not going to argue there's some, there's some truth to it, is that it forces the writer into an abnormal uh, cliffhanger point, and so you you know. You, you either have to force the story up to some sort of a little scary cliffhanger bit and then bring it back down instead of following a more traditional, you know, build, 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 resolve uh, plotline. But at the same time, if you look at this episode, uh, if you go back about exactly halfway through the episode, so if this were a four-parter, 20-minute episodes each, your cliffhanger would have fallen at just about the point where Amy got trapped and inside the, angel, the, and the angels and the angel coming out of the screen. That's right. right. It would have been exactly a perfect cliffhanger there at, at that point as well. It's almost as if this is a story that Stephen wrote, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, he was dreaming Doctor Who would come back in its normal four-part Format and he's you know he's had this outline in his little notebook at home somewhere just waiting for this story to come out and you know now he gets his chance to do it and it it, it so feels like a classic Doctor Who episode uh, in 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 that respect that I you know I, I I can't help thinking that he's been planning that episode for a long time. Well, he uh, said that he uh, he had been dreaming. Um, uh, I saw an interview with him. Um, uh, just on BBC America, they did a big um, special on all you needed to know about Doctor Who. And in it, he said he had been planning for you know t for that day when he could take over the show. He had been planning that since his childhood. Oh yeah, yeah. He's so been a big. He, he's 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 a he's definitely a fan. Oh yeah, you can, oh, you can spot that in in episodes of Coupling. They have it. Uh, they talk about Doctor Who, and, and I think in one. Towards the last season, they brought in a new character who was kind of a nebbish guy, and he runs a comic book store. And in his very first episode, he's he's put on a shirt, and it's like, "Bring back Doctor Who!" on his shirt. <laughs> I mean, there's just there's just no doubt that the man has been working Doctor Who into his stuff for years. Yeah. Well, I think that's just about all we've got tonight, and I. I think we've run a little longer than we'll normally run, so don't expect this podcast to be this long. We'll try to keep it uh, shorter than the actual episode of Doctor Who in the future. Mm. Um, but 
In the meantime, we hope to see you again next week when we will be reviewing part two of this story and episode five of the current series. That's Flesh and Stone. See you then. Goodbye. Fusion Patrol is produced by Lone Locust Productions. You can contact us at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our theme music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf.